welcome. Sorry for the delay. I had to run over from the hospital this morning. Uh, so um, what I'm going to do is uh, talk to you a little bit about um, some of the things that we've learned over the years about um, resilience and uh, kind of what what's called successful aging. Uh, and uh, what I've done is is thought a little bit about this uh, in the context of um, a bit of a background theme, which you probably recognize, uh, the idea of rust and the Tin Man. So we're going to talk a little bit about um, kind of what we've learned in the context of this, um, of this uh, kind of metaphor. And, and so um, where should we start? You know, what do, what do we know? Um, let me see something here. But, uh, so um, this is the Tin Man. About a year ago, I was chopping that tree when suddenly it began to rain. And right in the middle of the chop, I, I rusted solid. Been that way ever since. Well, you're perfect my, now. My neck, my, my neck. Perfect? Oh, bang on my chest if you think I'm perfect. Go ahead, bang on it. Tinsmith forgot to give me a heart. So what we turned it no out. Heart? <laughs> no heart? No heart. All hollow. To that theme in a, in a few minutes, which is the issue of heart health uh, in terms of brain health and what we know. Um, and so, um, what is successful aging? And, and researchers that have been thought about this, and, and it doesn't take a researcher to think that successful aging is not synonymous with living longer. That I think most of us think that that uh, it's fine to live longer if we also um, live better and live healthily, and that the idea is, is more about quality of life than necessarily a quantity of life. And that, in many respects, as I've talked to people over the years, um, isn't just about physical functioning. Um, that the uh, the issues of having aches and pains or physical disabilities are one thing, but I think for most of us. Um, as we have difficulty locating our car in the parking lot and other sorts of things, that, uh, the idea of, of kind of mental functioning is really important. And I think most, most of us uh, understand and anticipate that, uh, that the idea of having a, a healthy brain is, is uh, just as important and maybe even more important than a healthy body. But we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, certainly there are normal changes that I'll talk about with aging. Um, and, uh, and those are things that we can anticipate. But overall, kind of the secret of geriatrics and uh, what we do across the street in terms of the, in terms of, uh, the medical care that people get in the geriatric uh, team and also what we try to encourage here is that uh, so much of what we do is, is prevention. Uh, that everybody thinks prevention and health care is about children. It's actually the, the, the major part of geriatrics and, and older adult health care is prevention, preventing bad uh, interactions between medications, taking people off the medication they shouldn't be on, preventing falls, preventing disability, preventing uh, the types of things that result in people going into nursing homes where they don't want to. It's really prevention. It's entirely prevention in many respects. There are very few things that we can just take an in. If you, know, uh, if you have uh, 
a strep throat or something when you're a young kid or an ear infection, we usually can give an antibiotic and things that gets better pretty quickly. There's not a lot of things that happen as we get older that we just can treat like that and bang, it's gone, right? I mean, we, we, we have to learn to adjust to certain things, but prevention is really important. And it's about adding life to years, not just uh, more years to life. So um, many people um, think that it's all about genes. It's all about genetics. So, um, so what do you think? How much of your longevity, how much of your um, likelihood of living longer is, is due to genes? What do you think? 10%. 10%? So you're on the conservative side. Anybody willing to go a little higher? 50. 50, okay, so that's commonly what I hear is 50, that's yeah, like half. Yeah. And one of the things about genes is you can't select your parents, you're kind of stuck. We, 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 we kind of been there, done that, so you, there's not much you can do, although there's really cool stuff going on with genetic re-engineering and things like that. But, um, but basically if you look at this, that if you look at twins that are raised apart, that actually the truth is somewhere in between. That uh, In terms of physical aging, it's probably about 30% or so in terms, of, in terms of physical aging. But what's interesting about that is 70% is not accounted for by genes. In terms of mental aging uh, and mental functioning, it seems like it's a little more predictive. Um, and that probably has to do with um, some of the risk factors that people have either for Alzheimer's or for cardiovascular disease or stroke that kind of impact that. But um, there is an exception. For really, for exceptional longevity, people that reach the age of 110 or 120, there, there's a lot of genes. I mean, you, you know, in other words, you're likely, most of us are likely to live longer if we take care of ourselves, um, except if you want to live to 120, and then it's really good if you've had somebody in your family tree that lived to 100, uh, you know, that probably is, is, is pretty important. But environmental uh, factors are really important. But, but what's really interesting is, um, this issue of how much of our health is accounted for by um, health care versus health behaviors. What do you think? Um, so how much of your health, your health status, and this is according to the World Health Organization, so it's been studied across the world, how much of your health do you think is due to the health care you receive? So what do you think? Any, 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 um, any estimates? Because healthcare is pretty important, right? I mean, we know that people are living longer, and the, and they didn't live as long. They hit the 1800s. You're, 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 the average age of life expectancy was age 47. So something's different from 1800. Well, in the, Come on. in the developing world, it probably matters a lot if you get vaccines and things like that. But in our world, you, you, there's a big argument for avoiding healthcare because it can make you sicker. So <laughs> in the developing world, healthcare pretty important around things like. Uh, uh, like uh, the, the basic public health, and, and sometimes yeah. it's health care, sometimes it's healthy water and things yeah. like that, and, and helping people to avoid the dysentery and some of the infectious <clears throat> diseases. But uh, so, what do you think? What, what percent of your health is due to health care? Very little. You said very little? What a pessimist. Man, <laughs> I'm a doctor. This is terrible news. I don't hate to have care. This is terrible news. How about you? So, very little. Just saying what? What, 5%, 2%, 10%? Huh? You're saying 75%? So you, you are an optimist. You think 75% of having good health has to do with going to health care providers and getting care, getting treatment, getting something that doctors do. So we've got a 10% you got a maybe here. We've got a 75%. Anybody else estimate? I'd say 
You say 25, okay. So the truth is actually is this man here is right. It's about 10%. So about 10% of our, uh, in the World Health Organization, this is across the world, of health is due to health care. Um, about 50% is due to health behaviors and, and things that we can change. Uh, things like obesity, uh, substance abuse, um, blood pressure, which you might argue that has something to do with health care, but it has to do with exercise and keeping your weight down. Um, and, and so, uh, and then the environment accounts for probably about 30%, 20 to 30%, and the rest is, is and then about, you know, we talked about the genetics, probably about 10, 15% of genetics, and then the rest is like socioeconomic status, determinants of health. So that probably didn't add up to 100, but forgive me for that. But, but uh, basically the, the, the take home is about 50% of our health associated with health behaviors. 10% is health care. So, so that's really important, and that's actually some good news. And, and that has to do with modifiable uh, things like exercise, diet, coping styles, and, 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 uh, and social support. So um, Bob Butler, who was a, a mentor and friend of mine from, and unfortunately he just passed away, who, who ran what was called the Longevity Institute in New York City, was really interested in this idea of, um, of a prescription for longevity. And he had six points, I added two. Uh, so I'll be going over these. So maintaining uh, mental vitality, brain health in essence, nurturing relationships, sleep, managing stress, keeping active, <clears throat> nutrition, uh, prevention, taking charge of your health, connecting with your community, and then uh, writing your last chapter. So I'll be going over each of these as kind of examples of what we think about in terms of healthy aging. So, so um, here's this guy you probably recognize. Ooh, why if I had a brain I could I could while away the hours, conferring with the flowers, consulting with the rain. And my head, I'd be scratching while my thoughts were busy hatching if I only had a brain. I'd unravel every riddle for any individual in trouble or in pain. With the thoughts you'd be thinking you could be another Lincoln if you only had a brain. So, I don't know about you, sometimes when I'm walking around trying to find my car in the parking lot, I, I kind of, gosh, and I start to wonder, what's going on with my brain? Um, and even though this is, uh, in one respect, it's, we kind of make light of this, this is, uh, what we know is that, um, is that uh, brain disease in late life, particularly Alzheimer's, is the most uh, frightened, that the more Americans as they get older are frightened of that than any other illness and condition. Um, and so that the issue of, of how, we, how do we protect our brain and how do we maintain health is really important. Um, and even if you get a cognitive disorder, uh, a, a problem with a brain disease, that there are things that we know that can help. So what we know is that as we get older, that well-practiced information, things that we've done many, many times, is pretty well maintained. So that it's, that's what's called uh, crystallized memory, things that you kind of crystallized in your brain, things you've done many, many times, riding a bike, driving a car, um, cooking, all these sorts of things. Uh, or, for example, or if you're, um, you're in a business and you uh, have been at that business for many, many years, that's why CEOs often are older, you know, except for the dot-coms where they're like 10, but we'll, we'll talk about <laughs> but, uh, but most CEOs, you know, there's the wisdom that comes with 
with aging, which is something that is well practiced that people have uh, that they develop and are able to use good judgment. However, what does decline, as you know, is free recall. The ability to kind of come up out of the blue with names, you know, and that, that irritates all of us. It particularly irritates me. I've always had trouble with names, uh, but, but, it's, uh, but I'm aware that as I'm getting older, it's even worse uh, that coming up with those spontaneous recollection of names, although I recognize faces immediately and have good visual memory. Um, but, not, but free recall is tough. So with little reminders, cues, people who are older generally do just as well. But, but with a little bit of time, often can do just as well. Right out of the gate, not as well. Novel problem solving decreases. So what does that mean? That's why when you look at the dot coms, all the engineers look like they're 10, right? I mean, so, so people who are doing new stuff that's never done before, it's much better when you're younger. That it's hard, we're not as good as do, at doing very novel brain functions or cognitive functions as we get older. We just aren't. So that doesn't mean you shouldn't try, and some people recommend that you try things you haven't done before. You know, take up an instrument or do things like that, you know, flex your brain, and that's probably helpful. helpful. But it is the case that novel problem solving decreases. And so you see kind of a drop off on real, um, kind of very innovative, totally different type of thinking or new skills that are really different than what you've learned, what you've known for many years. Now there are exceptions to that. There are people who take up new things late in life and master them extremely well. But in general, the, these things uh, tend to be true. So um, what's the best nourishment for maintaining and growing an aging brain? What do you think? Is it, uh, which one of these? Is it uh, omega-3 fish oil or spinach or ginkgo, malabo, or choline supplements? Any ideas? Omega fish oil. Make any other nominees? Spinach. Spinach. It's actually a trick question. Probably of those three, omega three is probably the best in terms of decreasing cardiovascular risk and, and promoting, uh, which is associated with brain health. But this is a bit of a trick question. Probably uh, this is Gene Cohen. He was the first director of the National Institute of Aging, and also a, a, a friend of mine who, unfortunately, also died within the last couple of years. But Gene was this, uh, in his later uh, life, got very interested in the um, <coughs> enriching experiences and their effect on healthy aging. So he thought that, uh, and he got very interested in creativity and, and wrote this book called The Creative Age, which I would commend to you, really nice book by, by Gene. And he said that what nourishes the brain far more than any of the above, especially for those in the second half of life, is creativity or what medical literature calls a challenging and rich environment. Yes? How does creativity differ from uh, 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 novel problem solving? Because um, in the previous yeah, slide, yeah. you said it decreases. Here, What's different here, here? says be, Good point. be creative. Well, what I'm saying is you automatically have a decline. So that means that if you try to counteract that decline by engaging in enriching activities, you can decrease that decline. So it's kind of like, think about it. As we get older, um, we naturally lose muscle mass, what's called sarcopenia. <clears throat> the solution to that is trying to fight that by doing upper body weight, you know, free weight lifting and things like that, to try to maintain or do some sort of 
activity that's actually going to challenge the loss of muscle mass. Same thing with your brain. You're likely to, to lose some of those creative, um, uh, those novel problem solvings, but the extent to which you are exposing yourself to challenging and enriching environments uh, can be helpful. Let me show you what he meant by this. He did a, he did probably the only randomized trial of the time. This, he was a creative guy. He, you know, most people randomize people to medications and things. So Gene randomized people, flipped a coin, and had 166 healthy adults, age 65 or over, who either were assigned or randomized to a <coughs> cultural program like singing in a corral or uh, doing art or something, or just usual activity. Just do what you want. And what he found as he followed people out is that people who were engaged in these culturally stimulating groups, uh, painting, writing, poetry, corrals, things like that, had uh, reported better subjective overall physical health, felt healthier, had fewer doctor visits, less medication use, fewer falls, fewer health problems, and less loneliness and greater involvement in that activity. Now, Part of it may be the culturally stimulating thing. Part of it may just have brought, to, brought those people together to be with each other. We know that social support and being with other people is associated with better health. But it's pretty interesting. I, I don't know if anyone's replicated this, uh, but, it's, but it's a pretty interesting finding. Uh, and so you might ask, how does that work? If it really does work, how does it work? Now, one might be more social support. But maybe the answer you, we can find uh, in rats. So what do I mean by that? <laughs> so. There have been studies that have been done uh, with rats, mice, in which what they did was they took these mice and they either put them in what are called enriched environments. Now they didn't go to corrals and do paintings and things like that, but they put them in cages with toys and playthings, lots of stuff to fool around with. And then they had other animals they put in sterile environments, nothing going on. Basically, probably sitting in front of a TV, you know, watching daytime TV, something like that, I don't know. But, but nothing going on that's really particularly stimulating. Now, what's really interesting is, is that when they, when they uh, looked at the brains of these uh, mice, that those mice that were exposed to enriched environments, cages with wheels and toys and playthings, had uh, thicker cerebral cortex, the outer layer of the brain was thicker, and more nerve connections, more synaptic, you know, the connections, nerves are connected by these things called synapses, and there are these connections between two different nerves, and there are more of these, more branches to the nerves grew out. And that's really interesting, because you probably learned when you were, as I did, that, you know, you get, your, you get a certain amount of brain, muscle, brain uh, cells and brain connections, and over time you just lose them that you're not going to get any more brain cells, it's over, they're just going to depreciate. Well, what this, this, these studies have shown is that, is that actually neurogenesis can happen. Neuro means nerves, genesis means what, birth, development, growth. And so nerves can grow. Brain nerves can grow. And the thing that makes brain, one of the things that makes nerves grow is a stimulating environment and also physical activity. Both of these things actually grow, grow branches in brains. And there's a thing called a brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BD, what other people call BDNF, I'll talk about that in a little bit, but brain-derived neurotrophic, a brain, got that, derived, came from the brain, neurotrophic, growth cells, factor. It's, it's a natural hormone. We can measure increased brain BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, in older adults who exercise more. Is increasing. 
So it's not just good for your heart, it's good for your brain health. So that's, that's one thing that, that we, we think we understand. And so maintaining vitality can be helpful. You know, exercising, stopping smoking, really important. Decreasing blood pressure and decreasing your, your lipids, your cholesterol, your bad cholesterol. And probably mental stimulation. People ask, you know, what about these games? You know, this, uh, what's that company on the web that says they've had 30 billion people that have done these mental exercises? Luminosity. Yeah, luminosity. So people say, does luminosity work? Well, certainly it's worked well for the, for the stockholders yeah. of luminosity, I can tell you that. And what we know, we know from people who uh, do these types of computer games who are older, they actually absolutely get better at doing those computer games. There's no question about that. So does that mean that if you are able to do those computer games, that that means you're going to be able to have better reaction time when you come to a stoplight, or you're going to be able to do other things? It hasn't really panned out that well to show that in any big ways. Now, that may change. Maybe we'll just get better at these games and figure out what will happen. And they certainly won't hurt. As I say, we know that kind of challenging your brain, again, taking on new things as you get older, we think is, is good and we think probably promotes some brain, brain uh, growth, um, particularly new novel experiences if you try to push yourself. Um, but um, cognitive calisthenics, not so clear. Again, if you practice tapping a, tapping a key, you'll get better at tapping a key fast. Um, so not clear, but it certainly can hurt. Um, but but uh, exercise and stopping smoking, we'll talk about in a few minutes, is probably more important than exercising your brain. Now, the other part of this is, um, is the idea of uh, social relationships. We know that social isolation is not a good thing as we get older. And this, guy, this is interesting, too, because we hear about people talking about aging in place. And I always have trouble with this idea of aging in place. I like aging in community. Because it communicates what we know from science, that studies that have been done that look at older adults who are isolated as opposed to those that are engaged in more social networks and social involvement, those who are more engaged in social stuff, where social animals do better medically, uh, and we know that we know that from a number of a number of different uh, different uh, lines of evidence. But but clearly uh, those are important. And if you look at um, predictors of aging well, this is George Valiant. George, I don't know if anyone, did anyone know George? He lived in Norwich a number of years back and went back, came up from Harvard, went back to Harvard. But George was a brilliant uh, uh, psychiatrist um, who um, I got a chance to know well when I was training down in Boston and also when he came up here, who uh, studied, did this thing called the longitudinal, Harvard Longitudinal uh, Outcome Study. And it's real, this is a really interesting study because if you think about it, how do we know what sorts of things that you do over your lifespan, particularly early, how do they predict how you do later? Well, one option is I could start that study right now. So I'm gonna, I decide, I'm gonna design a study, I'm gonna recruit young people, and I'm gonna follow them until they're 80. What's wrong with that design? I'm not gonna be around, I can't do this study. It won't work. So what did he do? He actually, he came upon this uh, really interesting, uh, uh, he came upon in a basement at Harvard, a whole, set of files that had been dusty and nobody had looked at, where a 
couple of entire classes at Harvard had been exposed to all these psychological tests and medical evaluations, and they collected blood and blood pressure and did all sorts of stuff. And he asked, he thought, huh, so these were done about 20 years ago. I wonder how these guys are doing. So he got funded to do a study where every year he there, going forward, interviewed this group of Harvard uh, graduates, uh, Harvard students. And since the Harvard student of adult development, Harvard study of adult development, the longest prospective forward-going development uh, study that's ever been done. Now, the good news, you might say Harvard students, how are they represented? How, they're, they're different than the rest. He actually also found a somewhat similar data set on inner city youth and, and actually did something in that too, which was kind of interesting. So anyways, what did he find? He found that predictors of aging well included uh, not smoking, not abusing alcohol, humor and the ability to anticipate. People who are more likely to look forward and have a sense of humor then look back and have regrets and, uh, and, uh, and not have a sense of humor. Sad sacks who look back and worry versus people who look forward and have humor do better. Um, a warm marriage, um, absence of depression and good physical health, none of these things are particularly surprising. But he followed them over time and, and clearly do uh, have something to do with what you should be focusing on trying to and gender. Of course, one of those are, is having a, a relationship which is sustaining. So maintaining friendships is good. Obviously, being positive, practicing forgiveness and acceptance, knowing when to say no in many different spheres important when it's over, over your limit. Um, I think also I know that uh, in spending time in some of the settings around here where um, older people tend to uh, want to congregate together, that there are really great rules about not talking about your pain and suffering all the time. That, you know, we've heard that, we've got it, let's talk about other things. So thinking about it, saying no and you know, time out, you know. So, so figuring out how to have positive interactions is really important. And making new friends is important and connecting and maintaining, uh, maintaining intimacy uh, are all, all uh, predictors of better health outcomes, which is interesting. We are social animals. Sleep, um, as we get older, sleep gets more fragmented. It's just part of the biology of sleep. Um, but as much as you can try to um, do things to preserve sleep, the better off you're going to be because increasing, there's increasing risk of death from uh, cardiovascular disease for too little sleep. Your immune function also goes down when you don't sleep. You know that if you've had a couple of times you've had where you, you really have been stressed, you've done red eyes on flights or something, and then you get a cold, you know? It's like, was it because you were exposed to someone on that flight who had a cold? Probably, but it's also because you came home and you were wiped out, you just did an overseas flight, well, yes. And memory and thinking uh, also begins to depreciate. We know that that's why there are now restrictions on doctors who are residents, you know, having too, much, too many hours on call. We absolutely know that uh, you start getting uh, impaired, and we know the truck drivers start to act like drunk drivers if you, if you um, impair, if you uh, limit too much sleep. So you start to get really impaired in terms of reaction time and other sorts of things. So it's, yeah, it's important. And how do we do that? Um, you know these things, keeping busy, regular exercise, being thoughtful about caffeine and alcohol. Alcohol is a lousy sleep medication. 
it puts you to sleep, but it has a half-life, which means its dose goes away, half of its dose goes away in like a couple hours. So that's why if you have a, have a drink and you wake up at 2 a.m., that's because the effect, sedative effect wear, wore off, so it's not a great sleep medication. Some medications may be stimulants. Some of like bronchodilators, if you've got asthma or a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, um, those can be stimulants and keep you up. So talking to your doctor about it, is this potentially keeping me jazzed up? Why don't you put me on this? I've been not sleeping well. That can happen. Limiting liquid intake, we all know that getting up in the middle of the night can impair you. So having that cup of tea before you go to bed may or may not be a good thing. Um, naps can be helpful. Um, Sleep medication should be short-term, long-term use of benzodiazepines, uh, things like uh, Restoril or Ativan, Lorazepam can, over time you get habituated and they don't work as well. Benadryl's not good. So Tylenol PM has Benadryl in it. A number of these sleep medications have Benadryl. Benadryl, not bad for kids, bad for older people. Why? So. The chemical, one of the major chemicals that, uh, that is responsible for memory is called acetylcholine. Acetylcholine. It's like the memory chem chemical. What chemical starts to really disappear when you have Alzheimer's? Acetylcholine. What is Benadryl? Anticholinergic. What does that mean? It decreases your acetylcholine. So if you're older, and you want to sleep, but you don't want to mess up your memory, don't take anticholinergic medications. And there are lists of these. So, so we have a thing called the beers list of medications. It has nothing to do with the, uh, the beverage beer. It's uh, this guy beer who put together it. But there's lists of medications that are not good for us as we get older. And anticholinergic medications, there are a number of these. But particularly if you look at the box, Benadryl is also called diphenhydramine, you know. So things that are Benadryl, diphenhydramine, Tylenol, PM, not good. Um, anything that gives you kind of a dry mouth when you take it, usually that's anticholinergic. Those drugs impair memory. They're not good. Yeah? How do you spell anticholinergic? Anticholinergic. So, anti-anticholin anticholinergic and uh, and the, the drug the, the, the brain transmitter is acetylcholine this is the this is the brain chemical that is mostly associated with memory acetylcholine which goes down with Alzheimer's and goes down with Benadryl so this is Benadryl is anticholinergic it's, it, it, it fights against choline. and actually the medications we use for Alzheimer's they're called cholinesterase inhibitors. What that means is they basically block the enzyme that breaks down acetylcholine that's sitting in, in between your brain cells. So normally you shoot the stuff into the in between nerve cells and then an enzyme eats it up and makes it again. Well, the drugs we use for Alzheimer's stop that enzyme from breaking down, delay it. So you have a longer period of time of naturally occurring acetylcholine in the in the in the gap between brain cells. So choline, acetylcholine, really important brain chemical. Things that are anticholinergic are bad. Is that clear? Yeah. Um, another question about sleep. If you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like really, really awake, is it 
bad to get up and do work, or is it, should you lie there and say, oh, I should lie here until I go you back know, to sleep? You know, people differ on this. It's, I, I worked in a sleep lab years and years ago when I was, before I went to medical school, and we talked about this all the time. It's really interesting. Um, most people think what you should do is try to stay in bed for a while and do whatever you can to kind of rid your mind mm -hmm. of whatever thoughts, you know. So whether that's counting sheep or meditating on some peaceful kind of image that doesn't have the worries about finances and kids and painting the house and stacking the wood, whatever. <laughs> try to think, try to get into the zone and, 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 and try, to, try to lay there for a while. Most people think that if, if, you've, um, if you've done that for a while and you can't get anything, you know, you're um, really not um, falling back asleep for, I don't know, 20 minutes or so, some people recommend you get up. I know that for myself, um, it depends on when that happens. Mm -hmm. I usually get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and I write. Yeah. So if I wake up at 3 a.m. and I can't get back to sleep, people who work with me know I get up. Yeah. It's, and then, uh, then by the end of the day, the next day, I'm... You know, yeah. not a great shape. You right. know, by five o'clock, people are kind of leading me around by my hand. But how about reading? Reading, it's I find out that I wake up and I read a book that's not terribly interesting, not terribly boring, something just enough to get fed up and put it aside and go to sleep. I think that's a great. I mean, that, that see, so staying in bed and reading or doing something, TV's not good. Okay, so why is TV not good? What do you think? How does it stimulate? It's the light, and we know this from children. There's now a whole study, the set of studies being done, one by somebody that that I that I'm going to be working with soon, looking at the impact of uh, using of, of fooling around with text messaging at night. And what happens is the light stimulates the pineal gland, a place, a gland in your brain that actually uh, produces. It's a stimulant that makes you more awake. Um, and so um, light is not good. Now, I don't know whether you use, do you use a regular book or do you use a, a, an electronic book? No, regular book. book. Regular book. So, yeah. so regular book's probably good. If you're using a Kindle, make sure the light's low. Everybody's using iPads. You, so you don't want, iPads terrible. probably not good. Terrible. I mean, good. if you're reading on an iPad in your bed, yeah. don't do it. Yeah. Books are good. Um, so I think that's, a, that's my yeah, wife. Does. She often, yeah. uh, she, uh, she, she often will go to sleep, before she goes to bed, will read, and then that puts her to sleep. She'll start nodding off, and she wakes up, she might, she might get up and read. Um, so I think that's a great practice. So something that's, something that is associated for you with um, getting you back to sleep is probably the best thing. Mm -hmm. Unless it's early in the morning, I just sometimes just, I just give up and I get up and I go to work. But that's, I'm not recommending that. <laughs> Starting work at 3 o'clock in the morning is not that smart. And I, and I have to say, sleeping with her, 2 a.m. is not good either. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, setting stress aside, um, <clears throat> chronic stress is, is toxic. Mm. We know that it's toxic to the heart, to your immune system, and to the brain. So the extent to which you are exposed to stress is just not good. And you, you know, you remember this character. <laughs> Gee, that's, that's awfully nice of you. My life has been simply unbearable. Oh, well, it's all right now. The wizard will fix everything. It's, it's been in me so long. I just gotta tell you how I feel. Well, come on. Yeah, it's sad, believe me, Missy, when you're born to be a sissy without the feminine vibe. But I could show my prowess be a lion, not a mouse, if I only had the nerve. So, um, 
clearly, uh, I, don't, I don't know how the cowardly lion did, but his life expectancy probably was a little lower than, than uh, Dorothy and some of the other characters there. Because, you know, until, of course, the wizard, uh, you know, made everything right. And we wish that, uh, that, and we'll get more to that, we wish the doctors did that, but they really don't. So, uh, so how do we know this? We know that if you, um, if you look at people that are centenarians or, super, or, or uh, what are called now super centenarians, people who live to 120 or so, 110, by and large, almost all of them have several factors. One is uh, they tend to be uh, relatively lean in body mass, particularly the men. The women, it's different. The women can be a little bit, not, not as quite a bit. Most of the men are lean. The women tend to, tend to uh, have uh, had uh, children a little, a little later in life, which is kind of interesting. Um, uh, but one of the pervasive things is that most of the people that are super centenarians basically say, you know, if you can't do anything about it, don't worry about it, you know? That they, again, uh, are not uh, chronically kind of rethinking, re re uh, reassessing, uh, uh, regretting, and looking back. Now, it's easy for all of us to say, don't, you know, look forward, feel better, don't, don't. I mean, it's hard, it's hard, I mean, uh, you know. So, uh, and people, I think, are wired differently. Some people are kind of much more likely, and that's just the point, some people much more likely are given the gift of always looking forward and saying, you know, that's behind me, it's done, it's, you know, it's over, I'm, I'm moving on, you know, that's great. The more that we can try to do that, the better. The more that you're constantly second-guessing yourself, it's not good for your mind, it's not good for your health, it's not good for your happiness, we all know that, but it actually has an impact on your heart and, and, and on your uh, brain. Um, <clears throat> we know from the Nun study, uh, a study done by David Snowden, who did something a little different, a little similar to what George Valiant did. What he did was that he um, he identified um, nuns in this uh, in this order that were uh, cloistered, spent their whole life together, and they had written stuff when they applied to the cloister at the age of fourteen, fifteen. They wrote all these essays, and so um, he uh, decided to follow this group in part because kind of interesting in terms of in terms of risk factors because. You start to think about, you know, for example, people ask me, well, what about red wine? And, you know, it does decrease, drinking red wine does decrease cardiovascular risk factors, sure. But who do you know that drinks red wine? I mean, most of those people have a nice glass, a carbonate, you know, a, 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 some sort of a nice Merlot or something, a Pinot Noir or whatever, you know, at night. Uh, a glass, they're probably not the people that have terrible health disparities that are socioeconomically challenged, that have been exposed to violence and exposed to drugs and everything else. It's a different group of people in general. And so there's all these confounds, all these things that sometimes make these longevity studies complicated unless you control for stuff. Well, one of the good things about nuns is that they're eating the same food, doing the same stuff, Generally, they haven't been exposed uh, to pregnancy and to infectious to diseases that they don't all share. They have pretty much the same experience. And so he wanted to know uh, what was associated with um, better outcomes. And this includes, he was, they, they eventually, uh, all these nuns don donated their brains and, and he harvested their brains and looked for Alzheimer's and to see what was predicted with Alzheimer's too. So, what he, uh, what he found was, th this is kind of interesting, that those nuns that expressed more positive emotions 
even in their early biographies. Even when they came in at 15, those, the girls that describe, you know, kind of, oh, this, you know, happiness and stuff like that versus um, kind of negative or feelings of shame or I'm, I'm coming into the order because I'm a sinner and I'm a bad person and I'm going to get it right as opposed to I'm coming in the order because this is the most wonderful, you know, thing that I could imagine to, to, to be, uh, you know, committed to this experience. You know, those people did differently. At the age of 15 going forward, they were somewhat predictive, which is kind of, I guess, both, uh, you could say that's both uh, interesting, a little depressing, I guess. <laughs> it's hardwired that far back. Uh, that doesn't mean you can't do things. Yes? Well, they also had companionship and lack of stress by having a place to live without worrying about it. Exactly. I think, and that also controlled a lot of things, which is kind of these extrinsic factors. So. That's really interesting. Uh, that, so that, that's kind of another way of kind of studying these things. So we know, though, that positive outlook is helpful. Also, depression's not good. Um, now, we know that, but it's not good for your health. How do we know that? So this is a study showing uh, mortality, death, going out 6 months, 12 months, and 18 months after a heart attack. So all these people had a heart attack. These are people who are depressed, and this is likelihood of dying. These are people non-depressed. People who are depressed were three and a half times more likely to die after their heart attack. So why is that? What do you think? Why do you think that is? It's not just depression, not just rather heart attacks. The same is true for cancer. People who are depressed have worse cancer outcomes. People with hip fractures. It suppresses also. the immune system. So one is when we think it's immune system mediated, that, that uh, depression absolutely drops your immune system. So your T cells, which are these cells that fight off cancer cells, aren't as working as good. These little <coughs> cells that run around kind of eating up bad cells, they don't function as well. Infections and cancer. Um, what else? What do you think are other reasons? People who are depressed are less active. So people who are depressed are less active. So we definitely, so people, if one of the, what, if you have a heart attack, anyone had a heart attack here? Anyone had a hip fracture? Well, good. <laughs> but what, if you did, you'd say, I'd ask you, what does your doctor tell you to do after a heart attack or hip fracture? He or she does not say, you know, stay in bed for the next six months. They say, get up, you're going to work with your, with the, uh, with the uh, uh, physical therapist to develop a regimen of getting back into shape. We think that getting your heart clicking in the right direction is, is good. The exercise that's, that's measured is helpful. We want you to be active, and you're going to do better. People who are depressed aren't as active, so they don't rehabilitate as well. They don't follow the instructions as well around exercising and getting that hip working again or that heart working again. Any other thoughts about why depression They self-medicate with alcohol and other substances. So, so they do, they don't uh, take care of themselves or follow, follow the orders that really are as good. And they also probably don't, as I mentioned earlier, social support is good. People who are depressed tend to withdraw. And so they actually, it becomes this vicious circle. They become more isolated, they withdraw. The social support that could help them with their health doesn't happen. So all these things are not, are not good. So Stress busters, you know, music, exercise, hobbies, reading a book, or maybe one that puts you to sleep, or ones that don't. Um, uh, visualizing, meditation, Tai Chi. We've been doing some Tai Chi classes here at the at the Resource Center, that, uh, and there's really some emerging evidence that Tai Chi is good uh, for uh, both balance as well as uh, for uh, cardiovascular, and maybe even mental health, maybe even brain health. 
simplifying um, and reducing multitasking. You know, um, we're, we're in an era of, of, of multitasking. So, uh, oh, by the way, I have to check my email right now. I hope you don't mind. So, you know, people are doing all these things, you know. They're on the cell phone while they're driving, while they're talking, you know. And, and uh, you know, multitasking is stressful. It's really not particularly good, and I think I'm worried. To, many of us are worried that kids that have grown up in a period of, uh, of technology multitasking that their attention span is getting briefer and briefer, and there may be even some relationship. Exercise for the brain. Is it well? That's interesting. So, does multitasking exercise the brain? It might. I think probably though, focused. I'm not sure that changing one thing and going from one thing to another one thing, I mean, I don't know the answer to that question, except we do think that, uh, that multitasking, kids that are exposed to lots of these things have a slightly higher incidence of, uh, of attention deficit disorder, ADHD. So the brain isn't working as focused. Probably exercising the brain by doing something focused that's, that's, uh, that's uh, targeted for a while, that's different, you know, whether you take up a musical instrument or read something you haven't read before, learning a new language. I don't know the changing set going back and forth between different things is necessarily good, but I, I don't know if that's ever been tested. I know that people well, are thinking about that from kids and it's not so good in kids. The um, task studies for multitasking show that you're actually less effective. Less effective, right, I've so, seen that too. So if so probably if success infers, in what you do yeah. affects your mood and all yeah, that. Probably not. Accepting what you can change and letting go, we talked about that, and seeking help. You know, I think one of the things that probably is hardest for many of us to do, which is to actually accept the fact that we could benefit from someone helping us. Um, and I know that, uh, you know, my dad, who's, uh, who's 90, uh, 97, and my mother, who's 91, you know, he just, he just would not, you know, have anybody come in and help, even though they're in a continuing care retirement community. He just would, didn't want any help, didn't want any help, didn't want any help, you know, and he was getting a little more frail and having a little more trouble dressing and doing some things. And finally we convinced him to have uh, a couple of people come in in the morning for an hour to just help my mom and my dad, you know, dress and get things in order and get going. And he said, thank you so much for ordering, you know, for putting that together. You know, my son, my, my brother and I are paying for it, you know, and having that as kind of a, a gift, and he said, thank you. That's, he said, why didn't you tell me to do that earlier? I said, I've been telling you. <laughs> you needed help. You know, so, and so it, it just made his life so much better, but he just didn't, you know, he's a World War II veteran. You know, he was on the, on the ships receiving casualties from the invasion of Normandy as a doctor, and nobody was going to help him. You know, he helped everybody else his whole life as a doctor, and lousy, doctors are lousy patients. So, anyways, uh, he finally, and that was helpful. So, admitting that you may need help. This is this issue of physical activity. Um, we know that heart health is essential for brain health. We know this more and more. So, it used to be that people thought that, you know, um, that uh, Alzheimer's and stroke were largely brain diseases, you know. More and more it looks like more and more it's vascular, 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 that heart health is really important, vascular health, blood vessel supply to the brain is really important. And then also this issue of strength building, that um, fighting age-related muscle loss. I have a, a researcher who's one of the geriatricians here at Dartmouth who's studying sarcopenia. 
and what we can do to help people with muscle loss. Because what we're seeing increasingly, and I'm sure you've seen this when you go out, you know, you'll see people that are, that are walking around that are older, with big guts and skinny legs. That's a bad combination, both for heart disease, for falls, and all sorts of stuff. So as we get older, we lose muscle mass. It's a, you know, we all know this. And counteracting that by um, strength training in some way, shape, or form is, is important your upper body strength because you will be more likely to fall, uh, more likely to be injured, more likely to have lots of things if you're not kind of engaging some. So it's not just about aerobic exercise. I run, I like to run. Um, this past year I started, I got some coaching on how to do some upper body strength training because I started worrying, you know, about you know, am I gonna get back problems? Am I gonna get upper body problems? Uh, be, and that I needed to work on the upper body strength. It's not just good enough to run, you know. So um, it also increases your bone strength. So resistance training actually helps with osteopenia, which is the loss of, of bone. So your likelihood of having broken bones and falls, things like that, decrease with strength training. Um, and it, re it reduces risks of heart disease, dementia, falls, and fractures, uh, the, these sorts of both aerobic and, and strength building. So it's not just about, going for walks is really great, by the way. It's great exercise. But, Think about the strength building thing. It doesn't have to be much. I mean, we, we have groups here where we teach people how to use very light weights. You can, if you don't want to buy weights, you know, you can fill a container, you know, with some water and just do a little bit of this sort of stuff. But, but it's good to get a little advice before you do that. We have people who come here. We've got a medical student I'll show you who's been medical students who come here who do some uh, exercise classes and help people to learn how to do this. So, so how, how do you increase bone strength? I'm muscle strength, I understand, but... What happens is, is that the extent to which bones are stressed by regular weight-bearing activity, they naturally build osteocytes. So osteocytes are brain, are, are not brain, are bone cells. So the bone actually, and this is something, this is, this is really interesting also. We have another researcher here who's a, who's a rheumatologist. And she's trying to figure out how do we help people with arthritis, osteoarthritis not rheumatoid, the arthritis is wear and tear. To understand that even though you can you have a little bit of pain when you move, rest is not the solution, exercise is. Why? It's actually, with, people think that if you have, if you're losing, uh, you're having osteoarthritis of the knees, that the thing you should do is like not doing, you know, do less exercise maybe. Certainly doing a little less weight-bearing exercise, you know, jogging is probably not good, pool stuff is good, but Stopping exercise is not good because actually, the extent to which you're exercising those knees, you actually do start to build up some of the bone that you've lost, which I didn't know before until I had a rheumatologist working here. You actually can build up missing bone cells by exercise because if those bones that are stressed automatically layer on new bone cells, what are called osteocytes. Mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting. So that's how that works. Um, so, reaction time, cholesterol, blood pressure, mobility, mental activity helps with exercise. Now, it's also interesting that it's never too late. So I'll walk you through this one. It's a little complicated, but this is uh, these are people age uh, 57 to 75 who were followed 16 years later, and these are people here, and and being high is lots of disability. So being up here is bad. Okay, lots of disability. Being down here, not very little disability. 
So here, who do we have up in the who do we have up here in the highly disabled? We got people that were always couch potatoes. They were sedentary their whole life, okay, or, or during this period of time. So couch potatoes, we know, get more disabled, right? Now here's some people that were exercising a lot. This square, they were exercising a lot and they fell off the wagon. They were as bad off as the people that did a lot of exercise. So you, so your people that were running and exercising, eventually, who became couch potatoes, all that work they did when they were in there early on, it's gone, it's gone. So you guys who were football players or track stars or whatever, <laughs> sit around, you know, watching football and drinking beer and not exercise, you're not going to get any credit for being in good shape. And you women who are swimmers, who are now, you know, whatever, knitting only, all knitting is really good, I guess, but just sitting around, not good. So, so that's important. But the other one that's really interesting is the people who, obviously the people who are always high exercises, these squares, Okay, these are the people we hate, right? They, they, they always exercise, they're in good shape throughout their whole life, and they're doing great. Okay, we, we, that's good. Uh, but here are people who were sedentary originally and got the religion. They do almost as good as the people who were exercising their whole life. So the interesting thing is, is, that, is that if you weren't an exerciser, you, you, know, you worked, you were busy, you had kids, you went to work, you did what everybody's, and you decided in middle age to start doing exercising, you can end up almost, almost very closely to the same point as people have been exercising their whole life. That's really pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. What do those spikes represent in that group you just talked about? There's some real spikes oh, in there. Probably variation. Just that some people, you know, that, that you just, that this is like a 90, this is like 19. 1994, 1996, 1998. Yeah, what's the end? I don't know how many people. But I think what that means is, is that it's not quite as good yeah. if you weren't exercising your whole life. And there's probably a little variation, but I don't know. But those were just years. I have no idea. It is a little bit interesting that there's some of those spikes that aren't there. I have no idea what happened in 1996. I have no idea. So we already talked about this. BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, can grow is a hormone in your brain that um, can produce more brain cell growth. And you can produce it. It's a naturally occurring hormone. Yeah. You can't take it, unfortunately. I wish I had some in my pocket. I can't give you any. It, it doesn't work that way. You've got to produce it, at least at this point. But it does increase um, brain cell connection and blood. And it is induced particularly by aerobic exercise in some ascent by stimulating environments. A brisk walk where you get, you know, a, a nice brisk walk for at least 20 minutes will increase your BDNF. It can help. So we're really interested in this idea of prevention and um, just wanted to tell you that uh, we just um, got a grant from the federal government to be a, um, a prevention research center, a health promotion research center, which we're really excited about. So we are going to be studying ways to help people with obesity and smoking across the lifespan. It's not just older people, but we're one of 27 sites across the country funded by the CDC to do prevention research, health promotion research. So we, we literally uh, are open for business. Uh, we, the center officially exists tomorrow, October 1st. So very excited about that. We just got that big grant and we're thrilled to be doing it. So. Um, this is kind of the, the take home that there's no uh, 
no cure for memory impairment, uh, if you're thinking about the worry about memory impairment as we get older. We don't have cures for Alzheimer's. But we do know that diet, nutrition, stress management, exercise, medication, and, and kind of stimulating your brain can be helpful. But this is, um, this is really interesting. This is a paper that I just came across, an article the, uh, that uh, was published in the Lancet in 2014, just this year. And I didn't know about this. It was very interesting. And I also, this researcher, Christine Yaffe, I actually know, and I was going to call her up and congratulate her on the paper. I still need to do that. But they, they looked at uh, all sorts of studies in the world. And what they found, which is really interesting, is that when you look at people who get Alzheimer's and you look at what predicts Alzheimer's, part of it's genetic, right? You're stuck. Particularly early Alzheimer's. People get Alzheimer's, what it's called early onset Alzheimer's, at the age of like in the 50s. They have bad genes. I mean, there's more of that stuff. It's, more, it's called familial Alzheimer's. People who get Alzheimer's in their 50s have really very strong genetic propensity and their family's at risk. Set those aside. There are other, all of us who are at risk for Alzheimer's have lurking around some genes, these things called APOE4 alleles and some other sorts of stuff. We got some genes there. So assuming you've got a little bit of genes. But then what else explains it? So part of it's genes. What else explains it? Well, these researchers found that, that up to half of cases of Alzheimer's, in terms of their onset and their course, are attributable to seven risk factors. In other words, that gene gets turned on whether you have this risk factor or not. Depression, diabetes, obesity, midlife obesity, midlife hypertension, high blood pressure, smoking, low educational attainment, so people who came from lower, so lower education backgrounds, and physical inactivity. But what's really interesting is these are modifiable. Now, low educational attainment, I'm not sure about that. I mean, maybe you could pursue more education, but I think this is more of a long term. Think about it. depression, diabetes, obesity, high, high blood pressure, smoking, physical inactivity. Now, here's the question, not a hard one. Outside of Alzheimer's, what are these risk factors for? What other organ? Or heart. These are heart disease risk factors, every single one of them. So what's really interesting is that the same risk factors for heart health seem to be, according to this recent research in the last year, the same risk factors that you can modify with respect to Alzheimer's. So the extent to which we seriously treat depression, manage diabetes, control our weight, control our blood pressure, don't smoke. Um, maybe challenge yourself and not be sedentary. You're more you're protecting your likelihood of getting Alzheimer's. Yeah. Yet, uh, once Alzheimer's begins, modifying any of those factors has no or yes, does it have any effect on? Great question. We not we. Not curing yeah. Alzheimer's, but at least of course. slowing the progression I'll tell you of the what disease the, down. The hypothesis is early on the answer is yes. Do we know that for sure? No. But there are studies now that are being done with what's called MCI, mild cognitive impairment, which is like much of that goes on to Alzheimer's, of having people that have MCI, mild cognitive impairment, engage in vigorous three times a week aerobic exercise and stuff. Some of the studies look 
interesting in terms of suggesting that the course in those individuals does slow down. My guess is once you've got the, once you're at mid-stage Alzheimer's where you've got significant brain disease, probably it might help you to not have falls and have other bad stuff, but probably doesn't change. But I think at point of diagnosis, it probably does help. That's, that's what we think. Do we know that for sure? No, but we think so. So, and this is probably good news. Now, there's studies being done. There's, there are a number of studies funded by the National Center on Aging on just this issue. Um, and they're in process. But some of the early findings look good in terms of decreasing the course of Alzheimer's. Um, and, and are they with great, with great variation, though. I mean, there's some people that probably, once the, once the, once the keys turn, they're on their way. But I think for others, I, I, my bet is that this, I tell you, if I, if I got a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, I would start working out. I really would. And we're, gonna, we're talking about that in the center here. We have people increasingly coming in with early onset, early diagnosis. <coughs> and we think that uh, physical, physical exercise, assertive, aggressive physical exercise, managing these, uh, these risk factors, and then also um, mental stimulation, that's what I'd do if I had the diagnosis. I would start working out like nobody's business and getting stimulated and making sure I don't have diabetes and hypertension. And I don't smoke, never have, yeah. Is the incidence actually increasing still? Is it an upward trend? Well, that's really interesting. So, um, prevalence for population is going up. Incidence is actually going down. What do I mean by that? The numbers of people with Alzheimer's are absolutely going up, numbers. Because people are getting older, there's more of us. After age 85, your risk of Alzheimer's is about 35%. So, so the body does better than the brain as we age. We knew that. But, um, so more people are reaching 85, more people are getting older, more people are in, their numbers are going up. And it's, it's a huge, huge issue. The financial ramifications of this, which I don't have a slide for, it's another talk, are unbelievable. I mean, literally, literally in about uh, 30 years, if we have the types of healthcare costs associated with Alzheimer's we have now, it's going to be uh, close to the current GDP <laughs> in costs. I mean, that's just astonishing. So, so anyways, um, but it's staggering. Um, but um, it is the case that uh, you know, we do think that uh, if you look at the prevalence of Alzheimer's, or that I mean, per population age adjusted, for people age 65, 66, 67, 68, among that group, if that's the denominator, what we haven't been talking about, and I didn't see, I've seen nobody write about it except for these guys, the actual rate of Alzheimer's has dropped over the last 10 years. Why do you think that is? Is it, is it a numbers thing that we're just getting better at distinguishing between Alzheimer's and other kinds of cognitive we don't think that We don't think that's the reason. They don't think that's the reason. Why do you think it is? What have we been doing better treating in the last 15 years? Heart disease. Heart disease. Yeah. Obesity. So, obesity. Well, the obesity epidemics, but I think that's going up. But treating is getting better. But heart disease risk Blood pressure and cholesterol treatment has really gotten good. Yeah. So actually, it's interesting. The same, if you look at the curves in terms of cardiovascular disease, and you look at the curves around proportion of people per age in terms of Alzheimer's, they're parallel. 
That's really interesting. So what it means is, is that the extent to which we are successful in treating heart disease, we may have an impact. These guys may be right. That's part of what their hypothesis is based on, because they observed that the reduction in heart disease that we're seeing parallels the reduction in Alzheimer's. Even though everyone says it's an epidemic, it is. Even though the numbers are astonishing going up, they are. But per age group, they've gone down a little bit. And, and they think it's because of this, because of the heart disease treatment is better. That we're, and people's lifestyle. People are exercising, people are rehabilitating, people are controlling their blood pressure, they're trying to lose weight if they've had a heart attack, that sort of stuff. So that's really interesting. So, um, yeah, so the prediction, they, they hypothesized that if we had a 25% reduction in these seven factors, it would result in one half million fewer cases in the United States and three million worldwide. They don't know this, but they're hypothesizing. They're, they're basically calling on the developing countries in particular, not the developing, but the, um, uh, the G8 companies or whatever, to embrace a activity and prevention campaign focused on these risk factors to help stem the incidence of Alzheimer's in the same way it stemmed heart disease. That's interesting. I wonder if that figure will go down or up, considering there's so many heavy, obese people. I'll right tell you, it's, it's, we're worried about this. So this, yeah. this research I told you about is doing research on sarcopenia, but I didn't tell you it was doing research on sarcopenic obesity. And we have a number of papers that we've written in the last couple of years. John Batsis is the geriatrician who's the first author on these who works here on the incidence of obesity in the elderly going way up and it being associated with more falls uh, more higher morbidity and mortality. So we're worried about the impact of obesity affecting older adults too. It is going up. We got to do something about that. Now here's the tricky thing that John is trying to figure out. How do you treat obesity in older people? Because if you work really hard to lose weight through diet in particular, what else do you lose if you do dieting, if you're older? Muscle. Muscle. So he's saying, so it's not good. how does this work? So if we put people on a diet and we drop them by 15 pounds, they probably lost about three pounds of muscle. So what do we do? And the answer is, we got to figure out a way to have people doing weight-bearing exercise at the same time we're giving them diets at the same time. So he's going to work on that right now. That's what his project, his research project, is how to combine weight-bearing exercise, weight-bearing, not just aerobic, weight-bearing exercise with diet for overweight people who are older. So we're going to be looking for study subjects. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, Would you be willing to comment on the thesis of Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel that after 75, we're uh, generally rusted out tin men. You've seen his yeah. thesis and his comments, haven't you? I th I've seen some of it. I don't know him that well, but I've seen some of the stuff in the popular <laughs> press, yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced. I mean, the, the, you know, I really think that... Because he, he yeah. says he wants to die at age 75, yeah, I know. and he says everybody should die at age 75 because after that we're feeble, yeah. we're inactive, we can't do this, we can't do that. I, 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 I strongly reject that. I mean, first of all, I think that um, 
I think it's not, first of all, chronological age is not a good indicator of age. So you know people who are 70 who look like they're 85, and you know people who are 80 who look like they're 60 and who act that way. So chronological age is a pretty lousy indicator. What we know is that most five-year-olds have the same cardiovascular capacity, balance, basic strength, and, and neuro, neuromuscular functioning as other five-year-olds, with some variance. The further you get out, the more heterogeneous aging is. So you've seen one five-year-old, you've probably seen physiologically a few five-year-olds. You've seen one 80-year-old, you've seen one 80-year-old sometimes. I mean, you know, right. there's huge. Yeah. So I reject that. I think it has to do with functioning. I think it has to do with where you are. I strongly believe that people should think about, and we'll talk about this later, advanced care planning on what you want as you get less able. But I wouldn't, I don't think 75 is a break point at all. I, we see people in here all the time. And they're also, there's a super centenarian study. I didn't show the slide, but there are 120-year-olds, 110-year-olds that are very active in their one of the fastest growing segments of the population in the United States. So I don't, I don't, I don't buy that. I just don't buy it. And I'm trying to do something about it. So here I am running with my daughter and a half marathon. We finished this, we finished the, I went over the, it's really cool. We went over the finish line of the half marathon to cover bridges holding hands, which was really fun. So, um, Nutrition, important. We know this. Lower fat. We know that lower fat the diets in mice result in longer lifespan. The type of stuff you see here, you know. Um, omega fish oil, probably one of the few things that actually is not a bad thing um, in terms of uh, helping with vascular health if you were going to do some sort of. But I'm, I'm not an expert in, uh, in, uh, in kind of. Um, nutrition or in uh, supplements, but there are people like uh, Margot Margo Krasnoff, who's, who's uh, one of the geriatricians. She's thought a lot about this. If you ever want to hear her talk on, on supplements, she's got a really good uh, perspective on this and has studied it. We, we do know that prevention is important. You should know your numbers, your cholesterol, your LDL, um, uh, and uh, your blood pressure and where it is and your waist circumference. And waist circumference probably is the biggest thing. It's kind of the pear shape is not good. BMI, body mass index, John has taught, has now got an award for a paper that he wrote. Um, the body mass index in older people isn't that great because of lots of factors. Uh, dis natural distributions of fat in women change. It's normal, things like that. It's about, it's about the gut. It's about the kind of the pear shape. That is most worrisome in terms of heart disease. And so you see those people that have the big stomachs and the skinny legs, they are really at significant race. So, so worry about those sorts of things. Um, well, here we go, super centenarians. Centenarians, fewer obese, men are usually lean, rare smoking, better stress handlers. People have studied it. So. Another thing to think about, and this is where you may be getting at it, you know, how do you, what do you do about determining your own health care? So, so, so one option, I suppose, is, to, is that uh, hopefully, hopefully this isn't your medical business. Do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz. I said come back tomorrow. If you so, are really great and powerful, you'll keep your promises. Do you presume to criticize the great Oz? <laughs> <laughs> 
So hopefully doctors have gotten a little better than they were in the old days, telling you what to do, and if you questioned them and wanted a consultation, they would look at you like you had two heads, you know. Um, clearly, taking charge of your care, you know, we're big believers at Dartmouth in shared decision-making and in writing down what your priorities are and bringing those to physicians. We're teaching medical students more and more. You know, they may be most concerned about your hemoglobin A1C and your, your kind of HDL count or whatever. You may be most concerned about whether or not you're going to make it to your granddaughter's wedding or something like that. And to listen to people's own health concerns. And then you should feel absolutely empowered to ask questions. And we try to create an environment. I, mean, I don't know whether your experience has been across the street or whether you get care across the street, but we really are trying very hard to basically encourage people to know about the alternatives. There are many things that are so-called preference-sensitive decisions, namely, we really, there's pluses and minuses. You've read all the debate about, for example, women who have high risk, uh, high rates of genetic uh, breast cancer, and whether you do a radical mastectomy or not, or whether you do a lumpectomy versus mastectomy, or whether if you have, should you get a PSA, a prostate antigen test, and if you do, should you get a prostatectomy? Nobody really knows their pluses and minuses, and you should be informed about weighing those things. Doesn't mean you're the doctor. Hopefully your doctor is giving you information you can use, and it, it, but you should be a partner with your physician. Doctors don't know everything, and your preferences are really important. And you should feel very uh, welcome and empowered to, to ask questions and challenge, and get a, get, get a second opinion if you need it. Be your own steward around your own health. Um, social isolation, I mentioned, not good. Um, poor health outcomes, early mortality. We know people who are more socially isolated, as I mentioned, don't do as well. And we know that civic engagement, better outcomes. So here's an interesting study showing, uh, uh, and Jeannie, our chaplain, loves this study. Um, so, <laughs> so this is about uh, mortality after heart surgery, okay? These are people who are involved in lots of groups, social groups, and who are also religious, have some sort of faith that they practice. These are people with no religion, with religion but no group. These are people that have a group that they, that, that they are engaged in and have a, a, some sort of faith-based uh, connection. These are people who have both. No, neither. No. I mean, neither. No, these are no group, no religion. I'm sorry. No group. So these are, this is the mortality rate. And here, here's 2% or 3% versus 20%. It's really powerful. Yeah, that's huge. So, yeah. So there are researchers, we've had one here, uh, that have dedicated yeah. their whole career to thinking about the interaction between health and spirituality. Um, Harold Koenig, actually a friend of mine who got a grant the same time I did, and we were at NIH together for a while, um, has studied, spent his whole career studying this connection. It's really interesting. Really interesting. Bottom line is, and I don't think it's not to say organized religion, but I think having some sort of grounding faith, but also being involved in a group, you're less likely to have die after a heart attack. It's kind of interesting. So um, writing your own last chapter, this is the last recommendation. You know, advanced care planning, really important. We've, we're working now uh, in a concerted effort. Uh, Sandy Burstein, who's one of our geriatricians here at Dartmouth, is working to promote people not only getting advanced directives, but also engaging in what's called a pulsed which is a 
a uh, very detailed uh, itinerary of the types of things that you would want for yourself in terms of uh, specific interventions or not when you're in long-term care, when you're at the end of life, surgery versus not, or being fed, getting antibiotic. If you, are, if you have, if you're completely non-communicative, do you want to have that pneumonia treated or not? You know. Good to figure that out now. Um, I've had long discussions with my wife. She is my healthcare proxy. I've written down my preferences. She knows what they are. If she's not, if she's not around, other people can look at it. She knows exactly what I want in terms of my health care if I end up having some sort of massive brain trauma or become unable to recognize her or make decisions. She knows what she knows what to do. And so that's important. You can you can exercise your preferences and you should make them known and you should have a health care proxy. Too many people end up who are older in, in intensive care units with lots of tubes and stuff that they really don't want and are not having a good quality of life. Those people who want that, that's fine. If you want everything done, great. But the default in the emergency room when nobody knows you is to do what doctors do. They put in tubes and they put people in on machines if necessary to keep them going. Without other information, they will do that. And if you want that, that's great. If you don't, you can do something about it. So we're working on that. So. Be your own advocate. So this is kind of that longevity uh, prescription, you know, that I've talked about. Maintaining vitality, relationships, sleep, stress, activity, nutrition, prevention, taking charge of your health, being your own health advocate, connecting with your social community, and writing your so-called last chapter, which is what uh, Ira Bayok called it when he was here. So that's... Um, Kind of the end of that. Now we, you're in the Aging Resource Center. We, we have a number of things that we do around healthy aging. Um, there are some courses and things that uh, we'd like to make available to you and do make available to you, um, including um, some activities. This is one of our <coughs> last year. Uh, Ilda, who was a medical student who ran an exercise class, which is great. Um, and we have some new medical students doing that. We have a memory cafe. We've got a number of things that we and some exercise programs for people with Parkinson's and. Tai Chi and some other sorts of stuff. So any any questions that have been brought up that I didn't address? I'm glad you interrupted me while we were talking. Um, other questions that I haven't addressed? You've, made, you've had some great questions. Yeah? Is the um, prevalence of depression increasing or are just more people on meds? Prevalence by age or just well, in general? In, yeah, prevalence of Overall, um, what we know is there's a so-called cohort effect. What that I mean is it depends on the age group. So what people don't know is that major depression, namely the illness of depression that requires medication, actually is less frequent in older adults than younger people. People think it's the reverse because it's normal to be depressed when you're older. It's yeah. not normal. Yeah, if, you, if you are not eating, you're not sleeping, and you're crying all the time and you want to die, that's not normal. That's a, it's an illness, so we treat that. But actually. But the baby boomers who are coming along seem to have an uptick. Um, now, whether that's, you can hypothesize. Is that more fragmented kind of social network yeah. that they've had and moving away from family? Is it more stress? Is it the dissolution of family, the increased divorce rate, uh, the increased drug rate? I mean, you know, you could just, your, your hypothesis is as good as mine. Uh, I do think, though, that uh, 
you know, and then men in terms of depression, uh, you know, men, uh, older white men who are divorced, widowed, who live alone, uh, who have chronic pain and illness, who abuse alcohol, have the highest suicide rate by far of any group. How much alcohol is abuse? Pardon me? How much alcohol is abuse? Abuse, that's a great question. Um, we think that at-risk drinking, now is not necessarily abuse, at-risk drinking where you increase your risk. Uh, well, what is average then? Oh, I don't know, well average, well I can tell you, average, um, average is hard to say because there, there's still a lot of teetotalers who are older people. But, but for, on, on older adults we think that uh, that more than, uh, uh, more than uh, two uh, uh, glasses of any sort of regular standard drink for a man, and more than one drink a day, uh, is at-risk drinking. By that I mean you're more likely to fall, have cognitive impairment, have interactions with your medications, and maybe get into trouble. It's not the same as abuse or dependence. Alcohol dependence is kind of rare in older people. And the reason for that is, is most people that have been drinking and have been dependent and are addicted to alcohol and withdraw and have DTs, they died. They didn't make it to old age. We also know that, that women, so most men, um, you know, have, they have slightly more um, stable uses of alcohol over time. And if they had trouble earlier, they, they may reoccur when they retire and, and start uh, engaging recreational drug use or alcohol use and can get into trouble. Women are a little different. There are a number of women who had no problem, no interaction with binge drinking or whatever, who went, when they become widowed or, or alone or have a lot of pain, start to, start to get a very new uh, type of alcohol abuse pattern, which we worry about. Men are a little likely to do that. They, they, they usually have had that experience earlier when they were, you know, at dark night or whatever. Two glasses of wine, two glasses of wine with it every night was just about the limit. Uh, we think that's about the limit for for at for, for at risk drinking. Yes, that's the limit. And and uh, and for women, it's a lower, but just because your body, the women's body fat is different, and the distribution of that metabolism of alcohol is different. It's not sexist. It's just biology. It is what it is. Other questions. Great, we've been very attentive and had great questions, so thanks. Can for, I thanks just for ask listening. you one yeah, question? Yeah, the, the, yeah. this, this whole uh, craze about gluten-free. Yeah. Have you read any of, like, Grain Brain or any of these uh, stories that, that suggest that the root of all, of a lot of this illness is inflammation, which is caused by gluten? Well, I do, I do think, on the one hand, that we're increasingly becoming aware that inflammation is, a, is an important offender for lots of things. We know that inflammatory processes after heart attacks are really important. Uh, we know that uh, part of Alzheimer's is an, is an inflammatory process, and there's now some clinical trials that are looking at aggressive use of anti-inflammatory agents. So inflammation's important. Um, inflammation also, by the way, is good in part because if you have a cut, you know, you want a little, you want some stuff to happen there that kind of brings in new cells and cytokines and all sorts of stuff that cause a little pain but also bring in good stuff. But chronic inflammation's bad. Now, is that all related to gluten? I have no idea. I mean, I, I, I personally, I'm skeptical of any one singular, uh, I wish it was so simple. Yeah. I, I wish we could find, you know, one thing that if we just kind of turned it on or turned it off, you know, it would all be healthier. I think these are all multifactorial. I think that they're enthusiasts, including me, who get very excited about their research findings and then 
think and see you know if you give give a give someone a hammer yeah, everything's a nail you know yeah. uh, so uh, so I think some of it's uh, some of these sort of uh, fads are driven by uh, you know enthusiastic people who want to do good some of them are driven by commercial interests that want to promote their product or right. their talk or whatever yeah. um, so be be a, a skeptical consumer of any these things that uh, suggest cures or, or singular explanations for complicated phenomena. That's, that's, the way I, that's the way I think about it. I'd love to be wrong. We all would. It'd be great. I hope somebody well, will. A lot of these, it's like uh, gluten, anecdotally, you may know people yeah. that it makes a huge difference yeah. for, but that doesn't mean you have the same genetic makeup and you're going to find the same Yeah, difference. anecdotally, some people say they have, and I'm sure do have ex have huge differences that yeah. are gluten-free. And I know I have friends. We all have yeah. friends uh, who figured this out. But then also, you know, placebo is really powerful. So there may be people that don't have a dramatic, but say, "Oh, it's definitely helps some." And, and or maybe it's just because it they're not be, eating bread. Yeah. Maybe not they're eating bread, and bread, white stuff is not so good. You yeah. put on calorie, you put on weight. You know, you're not heavy. You know, yeah. uh, it may be just weight issues. It, it may be that uh, you've had you've had a nice placebo response, and placebo is not a bad thing. It's not phony. Yeah. I mean, it's part of these these uh, chemicals. Neuro, these these we can measure placebo response, and there's good stuff that happens when you absolutely believe that something's helpful to you. Not a bad thing. So whatever works, I think, you know. You want to have fish oil and the only thing I would say is based on this whole idea of uh, you know, people haven't asked me the red wine question, although I brought it up earlier, but I, I like you know, people have said many, many times that if you've got a choice between sitting in a chair, drink sipping a glass of red wine and doing a crossword puzzle, or going for a walk. <laughs> in terms of brain health, much better to engage in exercise. Take the bottle with you. <laughs> Maybe take the bottle with you and do the crossword puzzle on your, on your iPhone and then trip and break your hip. Leave the crossword. But take if you the want to trip and break your hip, it's up to you. But, uh, no, I mean, I think really, uh, I, I think that I think the red wine thing is, it's fine and I think it's not a bad thing and probably helps a little bit, but they're probably, you know, baby aspirin a day and taking a good walk or something like that. If you look at the, the, uh, yeah. uh, the Framingham Heart Study where they had people randomized to a baby aspirin a day, right. they did much better than people who didn't. It's all about, you know, a little bit of uh, thinning of the blood in terms of clots and not having those vascular accidents and whether that's red wine or a little baby aspirin or exercise. Yeah. But ultimately, I mean, I, the, the data on this Alzheimer's stuff blew me away, this, this stuff around thinking about the predictors of, of brain disease. And so I'm increasingly really think that we've got to do something about the physical activity thing, even though it's hard. Right. It's really important. I know you hear that all the time. People say, exercise more, eat less. Thanks a lot, Doc. You know, I mean, come on. Yeah, right. But, but I, th I think we need to help people to engage in, in non-painful, uh, supportive uh, physical activity and see that as something that's really important to our health. Yeah. And doctors, you know, all the pills in the world and statins aren't going to correct that if you're not doing something yourself. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you.